0: How will climate rank as a voting issue in November amid racial strife and a global pandemic? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. Underwriting for this episode comes from our friends at the Errol Foundation. No matter how many people claim that climate matters to them
1: in the election, a huge number of them don't actually vote. 10.1 million Already registered to vote, environmentalists stayed home for the 2016 presidential election. 10.1 million.
0: Nathaniel Stinnett is founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project. He's a veteran campaign operative of races for the U.S. Senate, Congress, and other elected offices. Apart from self-proclaimed environmentalists, how important is climate to the electorate overall?
2: For the younger Democratic Party voters, it's either their first, second, or third voting issue. For centrist Democratic voters, it's somewhere in the middle of the pack. It's only with right-wing Republican voters that it's dead last.
0: Jeff Nesbitt is executive director of Climate Nexus and host of the Climate 2020 podcast. He served as White House spokesman for Vice President Dan Quayle. Are climate-conscious voters more or less a lock for one party?
3: When you talk about Latinos, most of our community is Democratic, but I think uh, we relate to issues and, and to proposals and to people.
0: Vanessa Ock is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and anchor of Telemundo Weekend News. Earlier this year, she was the first climate correspondent to moderate a presidential debate. I began our conversation by asking her how she's speaking to her audience in this moment of high anxiety.
3: It's extremely difficult. I think it's, it's, a, it's a tragic moment for everybody, not only for the African-American community. What is happening in our country today is, is tragic for everybody because it's a it's a reflection of um, of what needs to change in our society. I mean, it's uh, it's unbelievable that today we have this type of racism and that um somebody can die um in the hands of somebody that's supposed to protect the community. So, uh, but at the same time, I think it's an opportunity. When there is crisis like the one that we're going through today, um, there is always an opportunity for change. And and we are seeing that people are are demanding change, they are raising their voices, they are standing in solidarity with our, our brothers and sisters from the African-American community. And um, I'm hopeful that, uh, that we can create a better society, one that, that is inclusive, that, uh, that is fair, that everybody can really thrive and make the best of their lives. So I think we should take this moment uh, as an opportunity.
0: Jeff, there a lot of organizations, whatever the climate uh, sphere, are struggling for what to say, what to do, putting out putting out statements. Climate Nexus put out what I thought was a really strong, concise statement. Which didn't have platitudes, you know. It had some humility, asked some questions. You know, wh- how did you come to that statement, and, and what were you trying to say?
2: So we've actually we we do a newsletter every morning that's sort of the media roadmap for hundreds or thousands of journalists who want to cover the climate issue and. Um, we were just as struck by the events as everybody else was. So we decided to dedicate the top of our newsletter to the ongoing coverage, um, whether it re, you know, had anything to do with climate change or not. So we've actually um, created a brand new section called First and Foremost. So we have a very robust discussion about the events that are unfolding in, you know, in, in real time in front of all of us before we get to the climate news. We felt that that was the, the, the most appropriate way to address this.
0: Nathaniel, your stat, your thoughts about about this moment. You follow elections, and and you know the election seems far away. Uh, your thoughts on on this amazing,
1: painful moment we're in. Well, it, it's obviously much bigger than politics, and I think that that's extraordinarily important for all of us to understand. I mean, the the very premise of structural racism is that it it bleeds into every crevice and corner of society, and this is bigger than tweets. It's bigger than police officers. It's it's bigger than politics. As far as what we're doing as an organization and what I think we need to think more about in the climate movement is not necessarily how we can stop what we're doing and start talking about racism, but how we can recognize the racism that fuels the climate crisis. Because a lot of it does. A lot of the structural racism enables The climate crisis enables fossil fuels to dump toxins in the air and and the water, because believe me, they're not doing it in the lily white suburbs. They're doing it in poor communities of color. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out, okay recognizing that racism is something that infects all parts of society, what is our position in the climate movement? What are the ways that we can talk about this and address it? Yeah, I've been thinking recently about the ubiquity of these
0: two things. There's, you know, racism is everywhere and carbon, embedded carbon and energy is everywhere. And so how do we tackle these these two things that seem that seem to be omnipresent? and and uh, I- at the same time, and connect them. They've seen been, been very different. The Yale Program on Climate Change Communication recently surveyed over a 1,000 American adults in an effort to find out how COVID-19 has impacted people's concern about climate. We spoke to the program's director, Anthony Leisowitz, about the study, which was
4: titled Climate Change in the American Mind. Despite the context of COVID-19, Public opinion about climate change actually hasn't changed. 73% of Americans believe that global warming is happening. Uh, That is an all-time high. 62% of Americans understand that it's mostly human-caused. Again, that's an all-time high. So I think there's a couple key lessons. First of all, it is okay to talk about climate change. People can, in fact, chew gum and walk at the same time. We can be concerned about coronavirus. We can be concerned about the economy. We can also be concerned about an existential crisis that's just over the horizon that confronts all of us. But it's also important to recognize the context in which these conversations are now happening are radically different today than they were just three months ago. One example is that COVID has really brought to the forefront of people's understanding and has reminded us all that science matters, that expertise matters, that literally listening to the experts can be the difference between life and death. In the same way, climate change is also about listening to the science, trusting the science. So COVID is a opportunity to remind Americans that yes, we live in a highly scientific technological age and that you really should be listening to expertise when they warn you about big threats. The coronavirus and climate change don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican. They don't care whether you're a liberal or conservative. There is now a climate vote. For the first time in American political history, climate change is absolutely one of the top issues.
0: That was Anthony Lizerwitz, a faculty member at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale and director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Jeff Desbitt, your take on whether, uh, you know, there is now a, actually a climate voter and whether um, people will actually vote on that, this such an issue. They might care about it, but it, will it really drive their vote in November?
2: So I would say absolutely, yes, there is a climate voter, and I trust that Nathaniel's organization is going to find even more of them, because that's what <laughs> that's what they do. I wanted to to double down on something that, that we just heard, because my organization does polling with Tony's group at Yale and George Mason. So we've done some joint polling together. There's a really interesting thing that's emerged in the the pandemic situation that's related to climate change, and that's this. There is residual trust in experts. It cuts across all party lines. Um, they may not trust their governors, those may break down along party lines. president trump um, Congress uh, you name it, except for when it comes to experts. there is a, a real trust in experts because they know that those experts are responsible for saving our lives. That carries over into the climate issue that if we need need to be prepared for a pandemic or any you know something right now, well climate change is just over the horizon. We should trust the experts there as well. Um, that's something that's really hopeful to me, um, and I think people are finally starting to get it. Let's listen to the experts and let's trust what they're t- saying so that we can get to what to do about it, and the, and that's the second point. There is a climate voter right now. Our polls have showed it. Lots of other polls have showed it. For the Democratic Party, it's the younger Democratic Party voters. It's either their first, second, or third voting issue, um, even now uh, in the middle of this pandemic and what's going on in the streets. Um For um, centrist, what are called centrist Democratic voters, it's somewhere in the middle of the pack. It's only with right wing Republican voters that it's dead last. And so it averages out. But so I would say absolutely, yes, there is a climate voter right now. And I do think even in the middle of all this turmoil, you'll you'll still see that show up in November.
0: But Nathaniel Stinnett, a lot of your work is that environmentalists lie about their voting record. They may say they care about climate, but they lie to pollsters when, uh, about actually voting.
1: Yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting and, and, uh, the way you frame it is accurate, but I think there might be a nicer way to think about it than all oh, these people are lying. Although you're absolutely right. And that is that even people who don't vote want to be thought of as good voters. It's really interesting. We have a lot of very strong societal norms in America, just like any culture has strong societal norms. Most people want to be thought of as smart. Most people want to be thought of as nice or honest. One societal norm that that our research has uncovered and other behavioral researchers have uncovered is that everybody or almost everybody wants to be thought of as a good voter, even people who don't vote. So for voter mobilization organizations like us at the Environmental Voter Project, this is actually an extraordinarily powerful tool. If we know that even non-voting environmentalists want to be thought of as good voters, well, then we can leverage that and to to get them to vote more often. Because I hope, just as Jeff and Tony have, have mentioned, that the number of Americans who deeply care about climate is rising pretty significantly and pretty quickly there is also this enormous population of non-voting environmentalists. And if we're able to actually get them out to the polls, that can have an enormous impact politically, but also on policymaking. So you're
0: trying to change the electorate, not change elections. Where are these, uh, uh, Nathaniel Stanette, where are these um, non-voting environmentalists? What states are they in? Yeah. Well,
1: first, let's just talk about some numbers here. Uh, 10.1 million already registered to vote environmentalists stayed home for the 2016 presidential election, 10.1 million. And these people care so deeply about climate and the environment that it's their number one priority. So this is a huge number. Now, as far as how they are distributed, uh, they are much more likely to be in the new South or the Southwest than they are to be in the Rust Belt. And part of that is for strong, strong demographic reasons. When we talk about environmentalists, and in particular, people who care so deeply about climate and the environment that it's their number one priority, these people are far, far more likely to make less than $50,000 a year, be African-American, Latinx, or Asian-American. And as Jeff mentioned, they tend to be younger rather than older. And so that's why in these states that I mentioned, you, you you have very, very large populations of these demographic groups that I just mentioned.
0: Vanessa, there were in 2016, about half of the 27 million eligible Hispanic voters did not vote. Uh, This time around, there's 32 million eligible Hispanic voters, the largest uh, voting block, quite a significant thing. Um, What do we know about whether they're actually going to turn out to vote if they'll 50 percent of them or more will vote this time?
3: Yes, I mean, this is is historic for us, for our Latino community. Um, We're very excited about these numbers. Before, before I talk about it, I wanted to mention that, uh, of course, with everything that is happening with the pandemic, with the, the situation if, uh, with our economy, 40 million people that are unemployed, um, you might think, OK, climate is not going to be a big issue in this election. But um, I think it's the complete opposite, because this pandemic uh, has made us a stop. I mean, everything stopped for the past three months. And these have given us time to reflect. And I think two things uh, have come out of this that are very, very clear. The number one is that we have realized how fragile we are as a society. Uh, we never thought that something like this could happen to us, and it did. Um, and number two, we are realizing that um, that we have a terrible relationship with nature, an unsustainable relationship with nature that we're taking and taking and taking and, and, and not respecting the boundaries of, of our ecosystems. So I think people are are listening and are reflecting that we are doing something wrong and, and that we need to change. Because if we don't, the next pandemic is going to be around the corner. And if we don't, we're going to be facing the worst consequences of climate change. As for the Latino community, they are the most affected. Minorities are disproportionately affected by climate change, uh, African-Americans, Latinos. Uh, so, so my community knows that uh, that this is an important issue because it's very real to them. I mean, it's, uh, it affects them when they go to work because they, they, they work a lot outside in the agricultural business uh, in landscaping, and we're having more and more heat waves. It affects them because they live in the communities that are more polluted um, in the country, and uh, their children suffering from for asthma 40% more more times than the children for any other ethnic groups. So, so this is something that is, that is extremely real for our community. And, uh, and I think uh, um, we just need to give them the, the knowledge and the platform for them to act on climate. And, uh, and that's what I do as a journalist and uh, Telemundo we do, we just give them the right information and empower them to, to go, go out and vote because this is, this is the most powerful tool that we have. Our vote is our voice and, and uh, I'm truly hope, hoping that uh, this election is going to be different.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate in the 2020 election. Coming up, Democrats can look to the Green New Deal. But what's on the ballot for climate conscious
2: Republicans? On the climate issue alone, they could cease to be a functioning national party if they don't figure out a way to address this issue. It's that stark for them. They know it.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. These are wild and scary times. I want to tell you about a podcast that might help you navigate all the craziness. It's called No Place Like Home. This season, hosts Mary Ann and Anna Jane explore how spirituality helps us find courage and strength to fight climate change. They chat with a Buddhist climate scientist, an evangelical pastor from Puerto Rico, a witch, a Muslim activist, a rabbi, and more. No Place Like Home helps us deal with the climate crisis on an emotional, psychological, and spiritual level. Be sure to check it out wherever you get your podcasts. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about whether climate still matters in the upcoming elections. My guests are Vanessa Ock, anchor of Telemundo Weekend News, Jeff Nesbitt, executive director of Climate Nexus, and Nathaniel Stinnett, founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project. About 100 million Americans don't vote. There are a lot of theories about who these non-voters are and why they choose not to participate in elections. We asked one woman in Seattle, a graphic designer named Natasha Kennedy, to explain why she's never cast a ballot in her life.
5: I'm 31 now, and so since I was 18, I chose not to vote. I know that it's really kind of a cop-out to say it, but I really do think that I can do more through affecting people's lives than just by a single vote. I see voting as really like writing your name next to somebody else's, and kind of once you sign up for one side, you really are agreeing with a lot of the things that they're saying and doing, and as a Christian, there's really no political side that represents what I think. You know, I grew up in a household that was primarily issue voters. They voted on abortion, and for me, I actually don't think my vote is going to change abortions as much as getting to know people. I would much rather be in relationship with someone who's had an abortion than, you know, vote on an issue that's going to alienate them. My husband has been a pastor and a scholar and teacher, and so we've often had places of influence or mentorship, and so I've had a lot of chances to speak into people's lives and enter into a lot of heated discussions. If I'm somebody who actually wants to speak into issues and things like that, but I've already signed up for one of the sides. I kind of lose half my audience that way. Especially if you have a person with compelling character, you know, like say Obama, our first black president and somebody who is like, you know, a history maker, it's very hard not to want to um, get behind something, get behind change. Our generation, people are pretty much discouraged and disillusioned with our government and with our leaders. And we'll fight for somebody to get into office and we'll see them get there and they'll let us down. Or they will have made promises to get where they are and then forget them. We just get kind of discouraged and we think, why would I take part in a broken system? I don't even believe in the system anymore. That's why I think people aren't voting. It's because there's no vote that you could write on paper that actually represents you.
0: That was 31-year-old graphic designer Natasha Kennedy, who's yet to cast a vote and seems pretty confident she never will. And we should note, she's also told us she's a dual citizen and hasn't voted in the UK either. Nathaniel Sinnett, a lot of your work gets at uh, not changing people's minds on issues, but persuading them to vote. So how would you approach someone like Natasha Kennedy?
1: Well, it's interesting. She, she brings up sort of the two different ways two different frameworks through which people often view voting or or really any behavior. Uh, And that is one sort of the transactional and the other is the more expressive having to do with your identity. She clearly poo-pooed the transactional value of voting, which, by the way, is fairly accurate. I mean, what's the likelihood of your one vote ever making a difference in anything? And she seemed to, to, to recognize that. But What came across far more strongly is this idea that by casting a vote, I think she said, by putting your name next to someone else's name, it seemed antithetical to who she is and who she wanted to be. It was tied much more into her identity and how she wanted to express herself. And interestingly enough, that ties into like the last 20 years of behavioral science. This is how behavioral psychologists and behavioral economists get people to change their behavior. You do not try to rationally convince them of the value of their one vote. Instead, what you do is you try to figure out who is this person? Who do they want to be? And how can I make being a voter be an important part of that? So for someone like this, I think a lot of uh, very powerful messaging would be to take advantage of how she sees herself and make very normative statements like, uh, if you think it's important to be a member of society, you need to be a voter or people who are uh, part of X religion. It's important to be part of society, things like that. Uh, it is extraordinarily important to use these sort of societal urges that we have to fit into particular groups as a hook to change behavior. Vanessa,
0: your take on you know those evangelical voters, you know uh, religious voters, you know, some of them in the Hispanic community. Um, you know what you've been reporting about them and and Trump this time around.
3: Well, I saw in the last couple of days that actually his numbers are going down precisely with these communities, uh, even twelve percent, uh, and I think he's realizing that and he's doing uh, different desperate moves uh, to raise those numbers because he knows uh, this is an important community for him, but. Um, I think what is um, what now we're facing and that is very, very important is, is this next election. And, and um, Biden has an amazing opportunity to really capture um, the vote of the Jews. And uh, of, 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 this, is, this is a vote that he doesn't have yet. I mean, he, he won because of the support of the African-American community and all the voters, but he, he doesn't have that, that energy of the Jews' vote. And I think that if he really comes out with a good plan, with a really, really strong agenda for sustainability uh, and to, to tackle the climate crisis, he, he, he has a possibility to really um, enchant this type of, of, of voters. Uh, it is proven that uh, the Jews, I mean, one of their two priorities is climate uh, when they go to the polls. So this is a a very, very important issue. And I think that if he really works on this in in a genuine uh, way, he has a, a, a very good chance.
0: But Jeff Nesbitt, you know the, the Sunrise Movement has pushing uh, uh, all the candidates, and and now Biden uh, to the left on on climate. Uh, but Biden's appeal is he he's the moderate. He he's trying to get those those uh, Obama Trump voters back. You know, can he be strong on climate? And does that being strong on climate risk uh, winning over those moderates, those so-called swing voters?
2: Well, you know what's what's interesting. A couple of things there. First. The, just the existing Biden climate plan is actually further left than uh, any other Democratic candidate in history. So we should just acknowledge that. So while, yes, it's true he's been positioned as a moderate or a centrist candidate, his actual climate plan is quite progressive. But even more so, I mean, you know, Varshini Prakash, who's the you know the co-founder of the Sunshine Movement, is on that climate task force to Biden. She agreed to be on that task force. Others who are younger, who are pushing Biden to the left on the climate issue are— are having real impact with that platform and I'll, I'll say this I know nearly everybody on that climate task force from the traditionalists like John Kerry to Gina McCarthy who you know runs NRDC and was Obama's EPA administrator to the to the younger crowd they're all actually working together and you know this about Biden he if he becomes president he's going to appoint some real pros to run the federal government as opposed to, and this is not a partisan statement Donald Trump doesn't seem to have any Concern over putting people who know what they're doing in charge of the federal government. We saw that in the pandemic. We still don't have a national plan. We don't have any approach towards that. We don't have an an actual plan for what's going on in the streets right now, other than to throw military and police out there to try to do whatever. So when you so I'm getting all my, uh, you know, my getting I'm worked my, up there, I'm yeah. getting worked up here. But <laughs> I, I look, I've had several big jobs in the federal government in two in Republican and Democratic administrations at the Food and Drug Administration at the National Science Foundation. The federal government is there to help us, protect us, serve us. And so I think on the climate issue, I at least am convinced that he will put um, if he's elected, he'll put a lot of folks in charge of the climate issue who will try to get something real done. If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate and the election at Climate
0: One. I'm Greg Dalton. So my guests are Vanessa Auk from Telemundo, Jeff Nesbitt from Climate Nexus, and Nathaniel Stunnett from the Environmental Voter Project. Nathaniel Stunnett, uh, you know, people on the left focus a lot on policy papers, positions, etc. But is this a policy election, or is this an election about tribes and identity and something
1: different than policy positions on whatever they are? I don't think any general election is ever really a policy election. I mean general elections are really different animals from primaries where policy nuance is is supreme over anything else. I would be shocked if anything, not just climate but any policy argument becomes the core of what this general election is about. That being said, the climate vote can still be extraordinarily important because even though climate change or health insurance or the economy or, or or no issue might be central to this general election, there are still tens of millions of climate voters out there who are looking for a permission structure to say, it's all right for people who deeply care about this issue to vote and vote for Joe Biden or vote for Donald Trump. That doesn't mean that 95% of the words coming out of a candidate's mouth need to be about climate change. It means creating this permission structure for them. These are activists or or even non-activists who have built part of their personalities around this extraordinarily important issue. And even if they don't hear about it on a daily basis, they're looking for a reason to say it's all right for someone like me who cares about climate change to vote in this election and vote for this candidate. And I think that is at the core of these uh, policy working groups that Jeff mentioned. This is what the Biden campaign is trying to do. They're trying to say, we're taking this seriously. So if you care about this, we're, we're giving you this permission structure to join us. Jeff Nesbitt, I want to ask you about whether
0: there's a new Republican lane or new Republican position on climate. We hear some discussion of whether, you know, Kevin McCarthy, and there's always this for years now, since the Pope came to, to uh, Washington uh, about five years ago. Is there any truth to that? You know, is it, is it posturing? Is it real? Do Republicans really try, trying to find
2: a, a new position and story because climate denial is hurting them? Um, it's not posturing. Uh, it is real. But all of that being said, it, it is true. There are there are quite a few federal lawmakers in Washington, in Congress who would love to talk about climate change in the public square. They feel like they can't for whatever reason. They feel like it will hurt them, uh, th- that they may may very well be primaried in, within their own party if they talk about this issue or a couple of others. So that is still a very real threat to Republican lawmakers. Um but I will also say they've seen the poll numbers that we have and others have. They've seen them on the climate issue alone. They could cease to be a functioning national party if they don't figure out a way to address this issue. It's that stark for them. They know it. And a couple of other issues have that salience. Um that's why you're seeing the Republican party start to like dip its toe into the climate waters to try to figure out how in the world do we talk about this issue deal with it um it's because they know there's a wave coming a demographic wave that's coming at them that if they don't deal with this issue it may not show up in 2020 in a big way but it's going to show up fairly soon so yeah it is real there it's real concern they really do want to deal with it how do they deal deal with that when Climate change has to be changed systemically, has to be changed through the government levers and and big business levers when, you know, that's you know, sort of goes against their DNA. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know there's real concern and they would like to try to figure out a way to address it.
0: Vanessa Ark, a lot of Latino voters are still upset um, with the Obama-Biden administration over deportation and immigration. You know, how is that playing out this time around? Because that's something that's that's very personal. Uh and, you know, he was known as the deporter-in-chief.
3: Um, yes. Um uh, that that was definitely um very difficult for our community, but nothing like what we have lived through these past uh couple three years uh, since we have this administration. I mean, we have seen deportation, we have seen family separation, we have seen children that are not reunited with their parents. Uh, I mean, we have seen terrible things to our community uh, from the beginning, from, the, from day one. Uh, so, so I think uh, this is something that is going to fuel our Latinos to go out and vote because uh it has to do with uh with dignity and respect uh for a community that is here that is working that is giving their best to this country and there is not a minimum of respect for what we do so um i definitely think that this is going to to be an important election for us and uh and we want to see change something else that i think is is worth mentioning when when you talk about climate change, this is an issue that is not going to go away. Uh, not because of the pandemic, not because of the uh, of the economic crisis that we are facing, it's going to get worse. Unfortunately, that is that is the reality. Uh, we just uh, began our hurricane season here in, in Florida, and according to the projections, we're expecting probably four to six big storms. So we're going to see that and we're going to see the fires in California and Australia and we're going to see the droughts in Central America and we're going to see migration coming from Central America because of these issues. So I think people see it in a very real way. It's not, it's not something that scientists used to tell us or, or maybe the news organizations that climate change is going to affect us all. No, it's happening now and it's affecting us today. So, uh, because of that, I think, uh, definitely the Republican party have to, to get on board, uh, because teachings are going to demand change and, and, and we need to do it now. That's, that's, that's the thing. I mean, scientists have given us only nine years to turn around and really cut the emissions to zero. So, so we need action now. Um, we need to, to move fast.
0: Yeah, and some of the Republicans in Florida, Carlos Corbello, who lost, but uh, Matt Gates, who's still there, is out, out there on climate, uh, prodding his, his Republican colleagues to get away from climate denial. Uh, Vanessa, tell us your personal story. You actually lived on Miami Beach and decided to move away.
3: Yes. Yes, well, um, I, I got to Florida probably like 18 years ago, and, um, and I, I arrived to Miami Beach because it's just a beautiful place. And we love it, and uh, my son uh, was raised there and uh, we had an amazing time. But uh, I will say probably in the past five years, uh, we saw floodings very, very often. Like uh, before it was only when there was Kintai, we will see Alton Road, and that is one of the main avenues in in Miami Beach flooded. But uh, the last couple of years that I was there, uh, we will see floodings probably like 20 times a year and according to projections we're going to see 100 year floods every few years in Miami Beach so so this is something that is going to affect uh the prices of the properties is affects the, the way that you live because uh we used to live in an apartment and our car was parked in in on um, the ground parking and every time that there was flooding we have to move the cars because one day all the cars just were completely flooded so i think uh I mean miami and and florida is is ground zero for level rise and and it is going to affect everything It's going to affect the properties. If you think about it, in Florida, there is nineteen million people and fifteen million live very close to the coast and have their homes and, and have the properties and we have beautiful properties that is right there in the coast. So all that is going to be affected um, the insurance the flooding insurance are going to go up and and the prices of the properties are going to go down. So yeah we decided to move with my family because of the flooding because it was just uh something that we we saw that it was going to get worse unfortunately so we we need to take measures today i mean this is something that is urgent and And um, as a journalist, I I, I think this is the most important story of our times. And and therefore, uh, it's my priority to to tell the story of our changing climate, because I see that it's changing every day. And we see it more and more. And and, uh, and we need to act now. You're
0: listening to a conversation about how much climate will matter in this fall's elections. This is Climate One. Coming up why elections are always bigger than any one issue.
1: Racism is a structural problem in the United States. And every single thing we do is tinged with racism. And you better believe there are a whole bunch of states that go out of their way to make it hard for black and brown people to vote.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues.
6: Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about where climate fits in the November election with Vanessa Ock, anchor of Telemundo Weekend News, Jeff Nesbitt, executive director of Climate Nexus, and Nathaniel Stinnett, founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project. Nathaniel's work is dedicated to changing non-voting environmentalists into voters, regardless of party affiliation, which, as he
1: explains, is becoming less and less predictive of how they see the issues certainly in modern American history, but even before our generation, we have often viewed American politics along one axis, and that is an ideological axis. You're either liberal or conservative or somewhere in between. And not just in the United States, but also in Western Europe, we're seeing some really significant shifts now. And I'm not saying ideology has disappeared, But there is an alternate access and maybe even a more dominant axis, upon which people identify themselves politically. And that has much more to do with what tribe they are a part of. And you really have a, a group of people who are trusting experts and who buy into cross cultural objective truths and promote egalitarianism. Whereas on the other side, you often have people who, rather than trusting experts, trust the will of the people. They often define truths from within their tribe. And rather than promoting egalitarianism, they promote more individual freedom. And this cuts across party lines. I think it's enormously important for people to begin understanding that What it means to have a D next to your name and what it means to have an R next to your name, I don't want to say is unimportant, but it's a lot less important. Donald Trump held a rally outside of El Paso in 2018, where I think 45% of the people who showed up were registered Democrats. Party affiliation is not as strong an indicator as it used to be, and there are a lot of other axes upon which... You know, populist versus authoritarian, uh, trusting objective truth rather than tribal truth, things like that, that people are now defining themselves by. And it's enormously important. And we're seeing it with the coronavirus pandemic right now. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of great polling on it, but what little polling there has been, we're seeing, I mean, that the people who are wearing masks are the same people who care deeply about climate change. And there's now this this sort of basic lens through which a whole bunch of issues are being viewed. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see how various issues serve as proxies for other issues over the next five months. Because my guess is the people who really deeply care about public health and are taking uh, experts' advice and coronavirus precautions seriously probably pretty cleanly align with people who care deeply about addressing the climate crisis.
0: Vanessa your your take on that it's often thought that latinos skew democratic but they meant but jeff uh, nathaniel has just said that uh, that party affiliation doesn't matter so much
3: yes i mean I, I understand your point nathaniel um when when you talk about latinos um yeah, most of our community is democratic but i think uh, we relate to to issues and and to proposals and to people um what happened with uh, president obama when he ran uh, for president it was just that he was just such a charismatic figure and uh, had such a strength and, and broad hope and, and spoke words of change and justice and inclusion and and uh, all these ideas that, that we care deeply about and, and family and education. Uh, so for Latinos, um, all all of these are, are very important. I mean, we just don't focus on one issue. Uh, it is actually uh, an understanding when they say that we only care about immigration. That's uh, that's absolutely not true. We care, care about the economy, climate change, education for our children. So I think we connect to to the leader. We connect to 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 the message that it, that he's bringing to our community. Um, and and that's why uh, the Latino community fell in love with President Obama. Now what is happening with President Trump? Uh, I think some of in our community of course are connecting to the to the financial issues and, and, and when there is a strong economy it's it's it, this is an issue that's very important for Latinos and for anybody, really. So um so that's why he had uh some support. But um but what we have seen in the past couple of years in with this administration has been truly difficult and painful for our community. So um so I think we we're going to see change, and and um, we're counting on that. I mean, we're counting on that our community are going to go out to the polls and vote and, and use that privilege. And 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 if we do that, we're going to to be able to turn the tides in in, in, a, in a, to have a great impact in this next election.
0: We have a question from, uh, I think, YouTube, from Larry Birnbaum. He says, experts have predicted many dire things, such as multiple waves of outbreaks and a challenging fall, dangers of premature openings, 100,000 deaths. This is similar to climate experts' dire predictions, but in this crisis, the results will be evident and immediate. Will experts be trusted if the predicted dire outcomes of the COVID-19 crisis don't materialize?
2: I mean that that haven't already materialized. I mean, I'm, I'm, well,
0: some would say that some of the worst cases COVID predictions have not come true. Um, they're, they're, they're I, basically, I would, this yeah, is about the, actually, the alarmist yeah. question. You're 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 an alarmist. I would well, actually, uh, I, I, I would
2: actually I, argue against that. But go ahead.
3: I I think I think it's important to to, to understand that um, that this is this is something very new for all of us. I mean, we are discovering how this virus is reacting every day. Um, a lot of the predictions that we had at the beginning didn't came true, to, to, and, and thanks God, because they were uh, more than 200,000 deaths, because we start putting in place uh, the, the right protocols, like uh, face masks and social distancing, and, and, and that is the reality. So I think uh, um, the experts are right to bring the science up front and tell us, okay, this is what can happen, and this is what we need to do, and we need to follow, because that is the only way that we're going to be safe. Uh, if uh, in the future we have a second wave, uh, obviously we need to, to, to be prepared to do everything that they are saying in order to, to, to protect ourselves and our families. And I think if we follow this, this, this guidance, uh, we might not have a second wave or it might not be as impactful as, as they are predicting. Uh, so a lot of the, the results and the projections change all the times because of, of the, the behaviors that we take or the policies that the government states, uh, the, the mayor states, the decision that they take.
1: I, I think that that's a really, really good point. And, and Larry asked a, a, a good question in that this highlights a, a really important challenge for science communication. Because as, as Vanessa mentioned, like despite their name, predictive models aren't actually meant to predict the future, right? Like they're not nailing in in our fate, like some like ancient Greek poem or something like that. They're supposed to provide actionable data so that we as societies can say, oh, if we don't do X, Y, or Z, then this will happen. And so we need to do that. But it's very easy for people to misunderstand that if we don't explain the science in a way that that makes it clear that this is supposed to be actionable data. And this is something that does not have to happen it's just a picture of what might happen if we don't act in the proper ways.
0: Another question from YouTube here at Harvey Horn asks, are there a significant number of inactive climate voters in the few states that will determine the outcome in November? More generally, what tactics will have the
1: most impact and get out the vote? Nathaniel. Holy yes. (laughs) Uh, But it varies from state to state. It varies from state to state. Uh, Let's just take the, the sort of six typical swing states that people are talking about in the presidential election. So you've got Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina. Every state is different. And I want to be very clear. Campaigns have gotten sophisticated enough that they're not targeting by state. They're not targeting by demographic group. They are targeting on the individual level. These presidential campaigns literally know by name and street address who all the voters are who are up for play, and they have a pretty good idea of what issues they care about. And in some states, like Wisconsin, persuasion might be more important than turnout. But in all six states, you're going to have to do all three things, registration, turnout, and persuasion. Now, to get to this question, where are the the non-voting climate voters or the potential climate voters. Uh, First and foremost is Arizona. I mean, you you throw on a blindfold and throw a rock and chances are you're going to hit a non-voting environmentalist in Arizona. There are just enormous numbers, enormous numbers of people who care deeply about climate in Arizona, yet they don't vote. After that, I would say we're talking about Florida and Pennsylvania. Those are the three big ones where I think climate voters can have a significant impact or rather uh, inactive climate voters. If they show up to vote, they can have a significant impact, whereas in North Carolina, it's a little bit less. And in Michigan and Wisconsin, it's far, far less.
2: I would I would add one other state, Florida. We we actually did a survey. We surveyed 5000 registered voters. Um, and when you start to drill down and, and describe climate impacts uh, like 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 your consideration, Vanessa, for Miami Beach, you know, hurricanes, then they become really passionate about voting. And I think it's possible if if somebody wants to spend the time and drill down on the climate issue in Florida, they're going to find some of those voters there as well. Yeah,
1: I'll say, I mean, we, we literally have and, and we know them by name and street address at the Environmental Voter Project. There are six hundred and sixty million. I'm sorry, six hundred and sixty thousand already registered to vote people. Who list climate as their number one priority, who did not vote in the 2016 presidential election, six hundred sixty thousand, and like every election is decided by thirty thousand votes in Florida, and there are six hundred sixty thousand non-voting environmentalists sitting there. It's a, it's a huge opportunity for the climate movement.
0: Vanessa, um, you know you cover the environmental invest, lead the environmental investigation unit at, at Telemundo. Um, you know do. Th- Oftentimes, uh, people in broadcast journalism will say that environmental shows, climate topics have poor ratings. Is that your experience? Because there's been some famous people at MSNBC and elsewhere who've said climate is a ratings killer.
3: That is that is not the case, actually. That is not the case at all. I, I have been covering environmental issues for, I would say, 15 years in Telemundo Network. And... Um, We do very well uh, whenever we do a story about environment. Uh, Therefore, we have created an environmental research unit that is specifically focused on on environmental issues. But I think it has to do with with two reasons. The number one is that that before uh, we used to think that climate change was a distant phenomenon that was not going to affect us. Uh, But people are seeing that it's something very real that is happening today, that is happening every day in, in every community. So, so they are paying attention, and they know that this is this is happening. And number two, journalists have found uh, better ways to tell the story, and that that is my job. You know, that is a, a challenge because uh, the climate change story is, is a scientific story on one side, because it's, it's it's about how our planet is changing. So we need to make it really simple for people to understand why this is happening and what we can do to 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 make it better and to change the, the tides. Uh, and on the other hand, it's, 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 a human story. So, so I, I go out of my way to look for those stories, for, for to look for the, the people that are affected, the people that are making a difference, the people that are creating, uh, sustainable platforms for, for our society to change and thrive, and, um, and make it interested and make it, uh, with, with great camera production and, and tell compelling stories that people can connect and relate. And we have had, uh, an amazing response. I mean, for, for the Latinos, uh, Climate change and the environment is something that is very important. We have a special relationship with the environment. Uh, is on our DNA. Uh, we have this connection with the Earth. Um, so, so it's just to, to, to make them remember, okay, this is uh, your actions and the way that we live and the way that we consume any energy and the way that we do everything is having a huge impact on our planet. Uh, now, here's the way. Uh, here's what you can do. You can vote. Uh, You can, you can live in a sustainable way. You can be vegetarian. You can, you can do so much. Uh, So, so that's what I do every day, you know, try to bring those stories home to to my community to make sure that they have the knowledge, uh, the tools and the information to lead sustainable lives.
0: Jeff Nesbitt, you work a lot with the media. Who's doing a good job covering uh, both uh, climate and the election, or just climate in, in general? Because it seems that a lot um, there's niche media, but obviously COVID and now uh, you know the street protests have have eclipsed so so much of the journalism, mainstream coverage.
2: They have actually. You have one of them on your show right now. Where so, Vanessa, I was just I was literally talking to Mark Hertzgaard, who helps run co- the Covering Climate Now program, and he was. S- singing your praises, Vanessa, about your reporting <laughs> at Telemundo. So you actually have one on the show today. Um, the New York Times has a full climate uh, desk now. They have a dozen reporters, two editors. They have, they're have they all in on the climate issue. The Washington Post, likewise, has a, has a huge number of reporters covering this issue. I, I know Chris Mooney, for instance, quite well. I worked with him at the National Science Foundation. Chris was the driving force behind the, the coverage of That won the Washington Post the Pulitzer Prize for their climate coverage. Um, So they have some great reporters there at the Washington Post. The Guardian, of course, um, is doing a phenomenal job on this issue. Uh, What I like, I'll tell you where I'd like to see some more coverage, though. My friends at NBC News, CBS News, ABC News, Get on this issue. Get on it now before it's too late, because they need to figure out a way to tell the story the way, Vanessa, you're telling the story. It is a human story. It's a people story. It's a community story. They need to figure out how to tell this story better than they've told it in the past. So that that would be my answer.
0: (laughs) Vanessa, when uh, Telemundo is covering hurricanes in Florida— do they use the word climate? Do they mention there's the climate connection, climate absolutely. amplification? Oh, my
3: God. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, we, we take every opportunity that we have to connect the dots because, uh, because that, that's what is most important. I mean, the, the consequences of climate change, of course, are the hurricanes and the fires and the droughts. And we see it. But every time that we have a chance, we say, OK, but this is happening because of this and this and that. And this is how we can change it. Uh, so, so definitely, I mean, this is, this is our mission in, in, in Planeta Tierra is our environmental research unit. Uh, it is to, to really educate and empower our community and inspire them to, to act on climate, to, 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 to make them understand that they can be agents of change because climate change can be something that is, uh, that is scary, that is, that makes us fearful, that makes us freeze. But at the same time, if you provide people with the right tools and information, you can empower them and and let them know that they can make a difference.
0: You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about climate and the 2020 election with Vanessa Ock, an Emmy award-winning journalist and anchor of Telemundo Weekend News. Jeff Nesbitt, executive director of Climate Nexus and host of the Climate 2020 podcast and Nathaniel Stinnett, founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.
6: Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value— Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.